1: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
2: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
3: This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH.
4: A warning for listeners, this episode contains detailed descriptions of sexual assault. I am here today to tell you that I was raped only one month into my basic training. I was also sexually assaulted during my training in Borden, and I have been groped and kissed unwillingly at crew parties and mess events, and these degrading behaviors are more common than you think. On top of all that, I have put up with misogynistic and sexist comments all throughout my career. I joined the Canadian Armed Forces in July of 2018, and since then, I feel like I've experienced a lifetime worth of sexual assault and misconduct.
5: When I left the military, I felt betrayed, abandoned, broken, and like I was still at fault. I could not comprehend how I got charged for being raped. They used my um, my statements against me, forced me to stand beside my attacker. Um, I couldn't understand why I got harassed on ship and then I got released straight out of the psych ward. So I kept asking questions. I got my release changed. And then I kept thinking, I'm not the only one. When I found someone else that was like me, we finally went forward and we came public. But I wouldn't even tell people who I was because I was embarrassed for coming public and having rape in the military. And I had people put me down for it and degrade me for it and and tell me that it didn't even happen. Getting justice for incidents of sexual
1: assault is generally very difficult for the average female in our Canadian society. It becomes more difficult when you are trying to get justice through the military under the National Defence Act, where there are more options to plead down to an NDA offence, which carries little consequences for the perpetrator. Most times, the victims pay greater price than the perpetrator when they come forward, and that is why most victims are reluctant to come forward. This issue is too important to get wrong.
3: What you're hearing are testimonials given last month to the House of Commons Standing Committee on the Status of Women. Dozens of current and former members of the military have gone on the record about experiences of sexual misconduct in the Canadian Armed Forces. This study was spurred on by several women coming forward to report misconduct in late 2020, but all of this has been going on for much longer than that. Way back in 1998, and again in 2014, waves of women came forward about sexual misconduct in our military. That finally led to an investigation by Supreme Court Justice Marie Deschamps, published in 2015, which found a pervasive culture of sexual harassment and misconduct, which led to victims not being taken seriously. And yes, it goes up to the highest levels. As a result of that report, something called Operation Honor was launched, which aimed to address what had happened and to stop it from happening anymore. There was also a conclusive lawsuit. In 2019, Canada's federal court signed off on a $900 million settlement for members of the Canadian military or the Department of National Defence, who were victims of sexual assault and misconduct. Over 4,600 people have filed claims. Now it's five years later, and it's all happening again. Two women came forward last year, one of whom accused the chief of defence staff at the time, Jonathan Vance, of sexual misconduct over a number of years. Among Vance's duties, he was the head of Operation Honor. Now, the Minister of Defense, Harjit Sajjan, has promised yet another investigation with a wider mandate. This time, we are assured things will be different. Our reporter, Sharice Sucharan, joins me now. Hi, Sharice. Hi, Jesse. Sharice, this latest scandal, the Vance scandal, about sexual misconduct in the military has been all over the news recently. In reporting today's story, what are the new questions that you wanted to have answered?
4: Well, when I started looking into what was happening, it became clear that this is something that's been going on for a really long time. There have been women coming forward about this for almost 25 years, and many of their stories sound so similar. A young woman joining the military, being harassed or assaulted, and then the whole thing getting swept under the rug. While Operation Honor did include some of those recommendations from the original investigation by Justice Deschamps, it's been widely criticized for being ineffectual. So I wanted to understand why the Canadian government chose to do what it did with that original information. I also wanted to know more about the process of the military court system, where the perpetrator tends to get off with a slap on the wrist, and the victim suffers tremendously. We've known about this issue for decades. Why can't they solve this? And why should we believe that anything will be different this time?
3: Okay. Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by Kate Padden, Owen Helmsman, Aaron Rennie, Alex Richards, Jessica Crawford, Alison Kingston, Brian Ray Ajar, and Jacqueline. Hi, I'm Jacqueline Peters. I'm a sociolinguist in Montreal, and I support Canonland because Jesse Brown speaks his mind, and his mind is both agile and receptive. Canonland informs me on what is really going on behind the
4: headlines. In 1998, a photo of a young woman in uniform appeared on the cover of Maclean's magazine under the headline, Rape in the Military. In the cover story, Dawn McKilmoyle told her story about how she had been just one month into naval school when she was raped, and when she reported it to her supervisors, she was instead charged for being in the mail barracks after hours. That McLean story, which also included reports from 12 other women, sent shockwaves across Canada. It was the first time many members of the public had ever heard that rape and sexual harassment were an issue in the military. But as powerful as that story was... Not much changed in the military at that time. That December, a follow-up story ran in McLean's with another young woman on the cover, Tracy Constable, asking what, if anything, had been done. Sixteen years later, yet another McLean's investigation revealed much more of the same. This time, it was a young corporal named Stephanie Raymond on the cover with a similar story. And that story led to a wave of new reports and finally to the 2014 Deschamps investigation and in Operation Honor. And now there's a new wave of survivors yet again. The first woman on the cover, Dawn, has spent the last 25 years watching person after person come forward again and again about sexual misconduct. I reached her at home in Ontario. She said she's fed up with how long it's taken just to be taken seriously by the military.
5: I was 18 years old. Um, I didn't see much of a future in Peterborough. I didn't have the marks to get into university And I wanted to do bigger things than just like college or staying at home. So I decided to walk up the stairs to the recruiting office instead of down the stairs to the arcade and join the military one day. (laughs) I eventually wanted to become a doctor. I was hoping that I could get my foot in the door, take enough classes on my own that I could get into medical school, and then they would pay for my medical school, and I would serve after as a doctor was my eventual goal. So I was there for three months in basic training, and then my first posting was for my training to Esquimalt, and it was a month after I had gotten to Esquimalt that I was assaulted. I was told in 1997 that due to the fact that it happened in the barracks, of which the military is not responsible for, and I was not on duty, that they were not at fault. And now that we won the class action lawsuit two years ago, all of this has changed. So now I have to reopen my file and all of these wounds, which I've had to open several times over the years to get what I actually am entitled to. And now I'm waiting again to see if they're finally going to say that they're responsible.
4: In an odd coincidence, the military doctor on duty the day after Don's assault was Bonnie Henry, the same Bonnie Henry who's appeared constantly in the news this past year as BC's top doctor. It's been a constant reminder of the night she was assaulted. The next morning I was bleeding and in so much
5: pain I went to the hospital and she was the doctor on duty and it brought up a whole lot of things that I had to, you know, actually deal with. So it was a blessing and a curse. It just makes my public trauma even more public because <laughs> there's public
4: officials involved now. After months of struggling following her assault, Dawn ended up exiting the military on medical leave. She went back to school, and that's how she first started telling her story.
5: After my assault in Esquimau, I had gotten sent on alcohol rehab. So my yeoman on the Gatineau told me that I wasn't even allowed to be in the galley where we ate because alcohol was served there. So it was like they had... A hate on for me and we're trying to do everything to get me out and then I stayed in the military for 23 months I could never comprehend what happened to me and so I went back to high school and I was taking uh, OAC English which is grade 13 and my teacher suggested I write about my time in the military for my creative writing class and I was like well it's not going to be pretty and I wrote a 100 pages about what happened to me, and he was floored. And we had a teacher come in, Mary Breen. He let her read it, and she ended up calling June Colwood, who was a, a feminist in Toronto, and she called the Globe and Mail. So it kind of got on this whole train of, like, this story needs to be out there, but everywhere we went, it was too controversial. So the Globe and Mail didn't want to print it because it was too controversial. But once my pension lawyer got me in contact with that other girl, McLean's all of a sudden realized that, like, hey, there's many stories here. Because they had some other people they had heard from. So there was myself and 12 other women that came forward. When I went to McLean's, I was 25 years old. At first, I was proud of what I did because I thought, you know, I'm bringing forward an issue that could potentially help other people and make this stop, and then maybe other people won't get hurt like I did. You know, I started a 1-800 number. I tried to start an organization because I knew I wasn't the only one. I got inundated with phone calls from people all across the country men and women and i was a young mom of two little boys with a husband that wasn't very supportive and it all nearly made me insane but all i wanted to do was help these people and make sure that they knew that they weren't alone so i i just wanted a change to happen so no one else got hurt the way that i did anyone before 98 like there was people that went forward but it, got hushed hushed kind of so it wasn't a big thing where you could find it and pinpoint it however with this you could say excuse me you guys have known since this point you know it was a defining moment so because my face is on that cover in 1998 with rape beside it in the military any military official that tries to say oh we didn't know that this was an issue (laughs) you know you can say well here in history in 1998 It's undeniable. Do you know? One of the first things I heard about Operation Honor was how the officer cadets at Royal Military called it um, um, Operation Hop on her.
4: Dawn is hopeful that this time it'll be different. But she's tired of all the waiting, knowing that so many reports have already laid bare the problems within the military. And she's also worried about all those people who are stuck in limbo.
5: Well, I'm always optimistic and hope that change will happen. I haven't seen it yet, but Madam Justice Louise Arbour, she's going to do a new uh, review. But Madam Justice Marie Deschamps did a beautiful review and revealed it's an issue. And now we're going to have another review that's going to take 12 to 18 months which means that we have another 12 to 18 months of people potentially getting hurt and harmed in the military before any further action can be taken. There's nothing immediate in place. That's another year and a half potentially of benign neglect where they could put some hard, fast rules into play right now, but they're choosing not to do anything except have another review. So in the next year and a half... What about the people that this happens to? What about the people that have filed complaints and don't even know where they went because now their CDS office is all in upheaval? They don't even know if their complaints are going to be heard or when or anything. So there's so much confusion and so much on hold. And with mental health, being in limbo, so you have a year and a half to wait to figure out what they're going to do? That doesn't leave people in very good mind spaces we already know that huge overhauls need to take place it's not just me and so i became rededicated to changing the institution culturally so that it's a safe work environment so while it was very upsetting it was my curse and my blessing it regave me a purpose
3: Help as the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get ten percent off of your first month at BetterHelp.com/CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com/CanadaLand.
4: Donna Regal also experienced sexual misconduct in the military, like Don. Donna started off as a 17-year-old in the early 90s, with dreams of medical school and a career serving her country. Also like Don, Donna was sexually assaulted early into her military career. But right now, she isn't able to talk about that. Donna left the military in 97, but eventually rejoined in 2006 to work in public affairs, believing things might have changed. But she again found a culture where constant jokes, sexualized humor, and women being objectified in uniform were all part of daily life at the base. For the most part, she said she was able to shrug it off until one incident crossed the line. But by that time, Donna was able to use Operation Honor to report the incident. And she describes how going through the process of reporting ended up getting her in trouble. Here's Donna.
1: In 2012, I was on exercise in Shiloh. And one of the things that I'd asked for was special permission to go to the gym while I was on exercise. I was training to run a half marathon in Winnipeg so I wanted to be able to go to the gym and keep my training up. So I had 10 journalism students with me on that exercise. And one of them was a student that I had worked with for the whole year prior. So she and I were pretty good friends. And she asked if she could come to the gym with me. And I said, sure. So way we went to the gym and it was just her and I in the changing room and we were sort of laughing and chatting and being very loud. But we always have a f- fun when we're together. So with lots of laughing. And all of a sudden she got really, really quiet. And I was reaching for, I was just reaching for her running shoes. And she said something under her breath. And I said, pardon? And I leaned forward. And she said, there's a guy in the, in the room. He's watching us. and He's masturbating. And I said, what? And she said, there's a guy in the shower area. And he's watching us in the mirror. And he's jerking off. And she said, and he just ran out. Because he ran out the door to the back to the pool area. So I ran to the front. And I told them to lock the building down and call the MPs. that this person was in the building. So they locked the building down. And they called the MPs and the MPs came. So one of them was looking for the guy, two or three of them looking with the guy, one of the MPs was with us. And as we were walking through the shower area where he'd been standing, I stepped right in um, ejaculate. It was so gross. And then they found him. He was hiding in one of the bathrooms. So they arrested him and took him away. And then my friend and I were standing there we're just kind of looking at each other like, what do we do now? <laughs> like, I don't know. And I am sort of looking at him thinking to myself, I've never been in this position before. I don't really know what to do. And so we got our stuff together and we were at the front door when they took the guy away. And uh, as they're arresting this guy and taking him away, and they're already saying stuff like, it wasn't him, it was somebody else. And, oh, he was with me the whole time. We got his back. And I remember thinking to myself, like, what about my back? Like, I'm one of you too. I am a member of this military too. Why does nobody have my back? Why are you all rushing to protect him? And then I said, I don't even know what to do with this. Like, I don't know where to put it. In my brain, I, I don't know how to deal with this. I've never been in this situation before. So then we get back to the office. And at this point, uh, the, the woman that was with me, is very, we're very worried about what happened to this guy. Because, again, we're just sleeping in tents. Like We're on the base. Anybody can walk up and just walk into our tent. So um, we called the MP station. And I said, I was just wondering what happened to this person. And they said, he's been released, but he's escorted everywhere he goes. Uh, he's confined to barracks. And I said, okay. And so as he's telling me this, I'm covering up the phone and I'm telling this this other woman. And she gets really upset and she's sort of yelling and screaming. And uh, he says, ma'am, ma'am. And I said, yes. And he said, can you tell her uh, just, you know, I know this is really upsetting, but you can maybe tell her that he wasn't even looking at her. Like he couldn't describe her naked body at all. And I'm like, that's not super reassuring to me there, constable. Um, I'm so happy to know that there's a really good description of how I look naked in a police file somewhere, though. Thanks. So that was in May, and then in July I went to Ukraine for an exercise. And while I was in Ukraine, I got a call from the adj at the unit where the um, the offender was from, and they were going to do a summary trial for um, him. They didn't want to do a court martial because they weren't sure if if the identification of him would stand. So they wanted to do a court-martial because the burden of proof is a little bit less.
4: What Donna is referring to is the court-martial system, which tries charges committed by military personnel and exists separately from provincial and federal court.
1: I didn't have um, a preference either way. I knew that a court-martial re- could result in criminal charges and a summary trial wouldn't. But at the same time, at that point, it was kind of, I mean, either way, it's going to be awful. So they were going to do a summary trial in August. Um, and he said, we'll let you know like as the dates get closer. So then uh, in August, we get a call from Shiloh, and they said, okay, so it's going to be on this date. And I found out through the grapevine that the CEO had decided that he wanted to do it, um, mandatory attendance in the theater. So it's going to be like 300 people in the theater watching this thing. So then my chief of staff sat down with me, and she said, okay, here's what's going on. The accused wants to have the whole thing closed because... Obviously, he doesn't want everybody to know. And she said, um, "They can either do it open as they were going to. They can do it open, except for your testimony, or they can do the whole thing closed. What would you like to do?" So I called my co-witness back and explained it to her, and she said, "He wants it. He wants it closed." And I said, "Yeah." She says, "Then I want it open." So we had the whole thing open, and it was it was really hard. Um, uh, when you do a summary trial, the accused questions you. His story was that he had gone into the wrong change room by accident. And that his hand was in his pocket because he was texting. So he said, isn't it possible that I went into the wrong room? And I said, no, because we were being super loud and boisterous. Like you could definitely have heard us from the outside. And I said, besides, it's not like it's right next door. Like you, it's, you know, it's fairly obvious that it's a woman's change room. And then he's like, well, I could have been texting in my pocket. Yeah. So he was convicted. I want to say he got 12 days at detention barracks in Edmonton, and then he got what's called counseling and probation for six months. So counseling and probation is like meeting with your adj, and you have certain performance objectives you have to hit and restrictions on your behavior and all that kind of stuff. But he was uh, thrown out of the military within that six months. And after he was thrown out of the military, it was found out that he had assaulted a 12-year-old at a campground, and then he moved out east and he assaulted a woman in a cemetery and another one when he, she was out running.
4: Even years after the court process, Donna felt the effects of her ordeal. Going to a gym, which was part of mandatory physical training, became unbearable for her, and there was no one willing to allow her to find an alternative.
1: There was always unit PT. It was usually it was at least once a week. Sometimes it was a couple times a week. I avoided it, and I avoided it for a number of reasons. One, because PT for me has always been something bad. It's always been comments or, or cracks. It's been people masturbating in the shower. Even when I was at the brigade, I had a guy who was uh, the chief of staff's best friend say to me, you know, uh, I just, I love it when you come to PT because I can watch you run and do stuff. And it was just, it's always been really uncomfortable and I've always felt very um, naked when I go. So I've always avoided it, but I knew that I always had a reason why I could go. And for a long time it was that my daughter needed me at home until she left for school. The PT is always first thing in the morning, like earlier usually. So it was always a matter of that legitimately I can't go because I have a young daughter. And it wasn't until I was out in Edmonton that my CEO decreed that I had to go to PT, that it was mandatory, and that if I didn't go, that I would be brought up on, you know, not following an order. And I remember calling my friend, my supervisor, public affairs officer, because that morning I got up and I said, I've got to go to PT. And I got my workout stuff on. And I looked in the mirror and I said, no, I need something else to wear because this stuff is too tight. I want to wear like a bag. And I went into my husband's closet. Do you have any really big sweats? Just something really big. And he looks at me, and he says, what? I said, I need bigger stuff. This is too tight. And he said, what do you mean? And I just, I fell on my knees. And I started to cry. And he just kind of looked at me. And he says, are you okay? And I said, I'm really not. I shouldn't be crying, I'm crying because I don't want to go to the gym. This is so bizarre. So I called my boss and I said, I can't go to PTM having a panic attack. And he said, why? And I said, because I was sexually assaulted at a gym and I can't do this. And I just blurted it all out and he said, okay. He said, I don't know what to do. And I said, I don't know what to do either. And he said, okay, well, you're gonna have to talk to um, the major in charge. And I said, I really don't want to. And he says, I know, but you have to. And I remember driving to work that morning knowing I was gonna have to meet with this major. And I thought to myself, if I could get into a car accident, that would be great. Not like a fatal car accident, but just like break a leg or something that I wouldn't have to have this conversation that I don't want to have. Like, I would rather be in the hospital in traction for like six months and have this conversation that I'm about to have. So I walked in and I sort of unloaded on him. Just all I talked about was the one incident in Shiloh, though. I didn't talk about anything else. I just talked about that. And he said, "Okay, well, you need to talk to people in
4: mental health. So at this point, while Donna is struggling with the residual effects of her trauma, Operation Honor is underway. But she explains that Operation Honor, while a good start, ultimately failed her.
1: So Operation Honor kicked up, and I saw an announcement come out, and they said, we're looking for people to do what they're calling a restorative engagement, which is, if you've had an incident of sexual misconduct, and you're comfortable doing it, we're encouraging you to present it to your chain of command so they can better, you know, understand the human element of this. And I remember reading it and thinking to myself, that's a terrible idea. Nobody's going to want to do that. And then I thought, oh man, if nobody does this, then it's dead. Like, then it's not going to work. People need to do this. So then I said, okay, well, Donna, you're a captain. You're an officer and a leader. You have to do this. That's, it's your moral imperative. So I was wearing my fleece and, and then I threw my rain jacket over top and I hung up my rain jacket and I still had my fleece on. I was sitting in the back of the room because they said, okay, well, you'll come up after break. And then they went on break. And when they went on break, the so chief warrant officer for operations came over to me and he said, you're not supposed to be wearing your fleece in the mess. And I said, I promise I'll take it off before I get up, but I need it right now just because I'm shivering because I'm so cold. And he said, just make sure you take it off before you go up to the front of the room. And I said, absolutely, I won't wear it in front of the room. He said, okay. Well, I told my story. And there's a couple of questions, but in general, everybody was kind of horrified at how badly you know, some of these things were handled. So the whole thing took about 45 minutes to an hour. Got back to my seat and I picked up my BlackBerry and I opened it. And there was an email sent by the operations chief to the operations commander. To say that I should be brought up on charges because I was wearing my fleece in the mess. And I remember just thinking to myself, are you effing kidding me? Like, they sent it while I was telling the story. <laughs> but I'm like, are you, are you actually kidding me right now? I cannot believe that after all of this, really? I felt like I'd kind of spent a long time screaming into the void. And it just kind of, they just ignored you.
4: Donna is still in the military, but is in the process of being medically released for PTSD. She has plans to go to medical school after. She's worked to develop a training course for the military, and she helped to form the support group Survivor Perspectives. Donna, like Don, who I spoke to earlier, is committed to supporting victims. But the fact that victims need them for support shows just how badly the military's own responses failed. We've heard how reporting an incident can lead to the victim being charged— and how even after something is reported, you're left to deal with your trauma on your own. When Donna reported her incident to Operation Honor, she was still made to feel uncomfortable and unsupported. Why did Operation Honor fail to prevent so many reports of sexual misconduct? I talked to Emma Phillips. She's a lawyer and she was legal counsel to Justice Deschamps for the 2014 review of sexual misconduct in the military, which was the basis for Operation Honor and she helps to explain why some of the key recommendations from that report weren't implemented and what needs to be done going forward.
2: I find it interesting looking back at the mandate. Her mandate was quite technical. It was, you know, please review the definition of sexual misconduct in the official policies. Please review the adequacy of policies, procedures, and programs, and and look at the training of CAF members. She wasn't being asked to review the culture of the armed forces. I don't think it would have occurred to anybody to ask her to review the culture of the armed forces. And when she conducted those meetings and those interviews with members from across the country, what she really came to learn was that there was a really significant, pervasive, sexualized culture, that that culture gives rise to more serious incidents of sexual violence. And that there was a very, very deep sense of concern among members about reporting. And so in many ways, what she was really having to address through her report was the denial of the armed forces that this is even an issue that needed to be addressed. Because again, they were just referring to their own surveys, which said very low incidence. And she had to really make the case that there's a serious issue, that it's pervasive, that the reason why they weren't seeing reports is because of, of a problem of under-reporting, not because it wasn't happening. And that that under-reporting is occurring because there was so much concern about reprisals and stigma and what would happen to to survivors who come forward. This is all happening before Me Too. It's happening before the Gian Gameshi trial. It's happening before uh, the Bill Cosby trial, before a number of the kind of serious public incidents that I think were, you know, a real wake-up call to many Canadians. I'm sure we'll come back to Justice Arbour's report and the mandate that she's been given, but we're at a very different moment in time now than we were in 2013-2014 when this report was being commissioned. And in a sense, what Justice Deshaun was having to address and overcome was quite different at that time because there was so much resistance to her findings that there is a serious problem of sexual misconduct. And, you know, I think it's really exemplified by the Chief of Defence Staff, Lawson, who was Chief of Defence Staff uh, at the time that her report was commissioned. And and when her report came out, he retired just a couple of months after. You may remember that he gave an interview with Peter Mansbridge just a, a few months after.
3: I want to move uh, the conversation to something else that's of enormous interest across the country that you have found yourself having to deal with, especially in the last few months, and that's the whole issue of uh, sexual harassment within the armed forces.
4: It's a terrible issue. It's one that disturbs the great majority of everyone in uniform, and yet we're still dealing with it. It would be a trite answer, but it's because we are biologically wired in a certain way, and there will be those who believe it is a reasonable thing uh, to press themselves and their desires on others. It's not the way it should be. Um, what do you mean by that? We are men and women in uniform, much as we would very much like to be absolutely professional in everything we do. There will be situations and have been situations where largely men will uh, see themselves uh, as able to press themselves onto our women members.
2: That was the attitude, you know, at the highest levels of the military at the time. I'm not saying everybody had that attitude, but certainly the senior leadership, that was the attitude. So there was this deep resistance to the very idea that this was a real problem within the armed forces. And I think many met her findings of this sexualized culture that she described with skepticism, with a view that some women are just too thin-skinned. The survivors themselves were often the ones who would be transferred out of a unit, that the issues and incidents would be swept under the rug, that more serious incidents would get minimized into kind of administrative sanctions, even if there was serious sexual assault involved. So it's it's not just the fact of the sexual humor and inappropriate language. It's that combined with many, many incidents in which the chain of command was being really dismissive when incidents were brought forward. What she heard again and again from members was the real concern that if they reported within their chain of command that there was no confidentiality, that they themselves could be subject to reprisals, to stigma, they would be ostracized, that it wouldn't be dealt with in a a fair or objective way, that issues would be downplayed, you know, that they themselves could be harmed as a result, either in their career or um, psychologically. With respect to the the SMRC, the Sexual Misconduct Response Centre, which again was supposed to be the cornerstone of Justice Deschamps' recommendations, I think they really failed to appropriately implement it. Her recommendation was to create this fully independent external body. It was supposed to be able to receive reports of sexual harassment and sexual assault. It was supposed to provide victim support and guidance. It was supposed to monitor accountability by following up on complaints. It was supposed to track data within the military about incidents of sexual misconduct. It was supposed to develop appropriate training. And to act as a clearinghouse for research and expertise on those issues. And what was created uh, was a center which can receive anonymized disclosures, so it can provide victim support, can assist members to get support, um, medical care, psychological care, and provide some guidance on what the complaint mechanism is, but it's not authorized to receive reports of sexual misconduct. So it can't act as a body to really hold individuals accountable because it can't receive those reports. It does not act as a central authority to collect data about incidents of sexual misconduct. It doesn't actually even have access to the data. Um, It doesn't have the ability to follow up on um, complaints that have been filed. So I don't want to minimize that there's some value to what was created in the sense that it did provide that confidential avenue for members to come forward, for survivors to come forward, to get those supports, uh, to be able to provide those confidential disclosures. In fact, they have found now that there are numerous incidents, I think maybe about 50% of the calls that are received at the SMRC are from members of the chain of command who are seeking guidance about how to respond when issues arise in their own Command and that's that's a good thing, right? You you want members of the chain of command to be reaching out and seeking trauma-informed expert advice about how to respond appropriately. So so there are ways in which the SMRC has filled a useful role, but it's been a very limited role. It hasn't provided the accountability that was so um, central, I think, to Justice station's recommendations. So that's, that was supposed to be a key part of, of Operation, well, of, of Justice Deschamps' um, recommendations. It was a, an important component of Operation Honour, and I think it was really, at best, a half measure. You know, I understand when I hear um, survivors say, enough studies, enough external reviews, the government has had this clear recommendation and it failed to implement it. Madame Arbour has been given a very robust mandate. She's been given a broader mandate than Madame Deschamps was given. It includes looking at the military justice system, which I think is a key component. It includes looking at promotion and leadership structures, which is really important to addressing those broader cultural issues that we've talked about. She is herself someone with great credibility and independence and a strong voice. Um, who will say what she thinks. She won't pull her punches. Um, And we are in a different moment today than we were six years ago, so she's not facing the same hurdle that Madame Deschamps faced of trying to just convince the leadership that there's even an issue here that needs to be addressed. We know that there's an issue, and it's an issue that goes to the highest levels of the leadership of the armed forces. And there's a a crisis in the leadership of the armed forces because of this um, endemic, pervasive culture of sexual misconduct. So she has a window of opportunity now that is different from what Madame Deschamps had. I think that to get that change that we need to see happen, we have to maintain public pressure, we have to maintain media scrutiny, and we have to support the voices of survivors and and who are continually calling for the change. The Canadian government has certainly stated that they are going to implement whatever Justice Arbour recommends they have committed themselves to implementing an external oversight body. They've committed themselves to implementing her interim recommendations. But it's obviously the case that once things are out of the public light, the pressure is off, and maybe there's a change of government, um, things can change. And so I think we really need to keep that public pressure on government and on the Department of Defense and on the chief of defense staff to ensure that uh, the momentum that we have now is, you know, results in in that concrete change. I have faith that Madame Arbour will have a strong voice. um, And when she comes out with her recommendations, I hope that media scrutiny, you know, continues to be brought to bear on what the government's reaction is and whether or not they actually follow through on the promises that they've made.
4: Over the next few months, we'll see how this new investigation plays out. Hopefully, it will lead to much-needed changes in the Canadian Armed Forces. But many survivors remain skeptical. And it can't be overstated what a significant role the people who have come forward have played in getting to this point. For some, it's been over 20 years, and they are still fighting that same fight. I'm going to leave you with a final thought from Don.
5: Well, when I joined the military, I wanted to be a part of something bigger. And I did a documentary for Ryerson University, and I sent the trailer to Madame Justice Marie Deschamps, and she sent back, how does it feel to be a part of something bigger? And I realized that even though my military career was cut short, I learned so many valuable lessons that made me me, and then I actually did become a part of something bigger, because there's myself and many others that are going to get culture change happen in the military and shift the paradigm and make it a safe work environment for everyone. My pain really has been turned into a purpose.
3: That is your Canada land. Time is running out to sign up for a buck a month, three bucks for your first three months to get this show ad free and everything else that we offer to our paying subscribers. Help us make this show. Go to slash join or just click the link on your show notes and bloop, it takes a second to sign up. You can email me at jesse at canadaland.com. I read them all. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is CanadaLand.com, and there is a new episode of Commons New Season on Real Estate, all about the history of the Africville community in Halifax. It is filled with fascinating stuff that I did not know beforehand. Go check out Commons this season. This episode is produced by Sharice Shucharin, Tristan Capacione, and Damilola Onime. Our theme music is by So Cold. Syndication is handled by CFUV, 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like this show, now's the time. Please support it. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.